we're going to start with an important question this morning, so I need everyone's full attention. Kids, uh, I'm talking to you too. I need, uh, I need your attention. Here's the question. Have you ever tried to catch a monkey? No. Have you ever tried? No? Well, I mean, I guess we don't have them just roaming around or anything, right? So it's, it's not like there's a lot of opportunities to do so. But what if we did? How do you think you would catch one? Now, believe it or not, there is actually a way uh, to do it. And before I lose you, this has everything to do with our text uh, this morning, not just a fun illustration to kick us off. Uh, but here's how the trap works. You take a coconut or a melon or something that's hard uh, that you can cut a hole into and hollow out, uh, just big enough to let your hand slip inside. And then you put a little treat in there, something a monkey would like, maybe some, uh, some fruit, some nuts, uh, or some Skittles, as I have in my little uh, homemade monkey trap here. Uh, something that gets the monkey interested in the trap. And the, the trick, though, is not to make the hole too big. It needs to be small enough that they can't get their hand out and the, the goodies out of whatever it is that you've used as a trap. Uh, and that's the trick of the trap. The hole won't let a clenched fist get back out. So here's, here's the idea. You probably wouldn't use this in the wild. And actually, a kid said this morning, came up to me and said, why don't they, why don't they just pour the Skittles out? It's like... <laughs> The illustration breaks down, okay, but here it is. Uh, so you can get your hand easily in, and once you go for the treat, and, and you want that treat, but you just, you can't get both of them out, right? So you have, you really have to let go of the Skittles if you want to get your hand back out, and that's the trick. A clenched fist cannot get back out. So, so you just tie it, tie it onto something solid. You wait for a curious George to come along. Uh, stick his hand in there, take the goodies, and now you have yourself a pet monkey because they are trapped. But here's the thing. They're not doomed by the coconut or the mason jar or whatever it is, right? They could pull their hand out pretty easily, just as easily as it got in. And they're not trapped by the Skittles or the treat, the fruit, the nuts, whatever you've put in there, uh, the money. It, probably for most of us, this would be money in here. Uh, they're not they're not trapped by that easy either, right? That's just the bait. They're actually trapped by their unwillingness to let go, by their clenched fist inside of the jar. In short, they are trapped by their greed. And that's what we're talking about this morning, the vice of greed uh, and its counterpart, virtue, generosity. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Vices and Virtues. We're taking a look at the traditional list of the seven deadly sins, vices, and their counterpart virtues. This is not a list that's in Scripture, but has but has been an important uh, an important pursuit uh, in in the Christian faith traditionally. And so this morning we're talking about greed. Uh, so the nice thing about that is that none of us here are greedy, right? None of us really struggle with greed. Okay, maybe that's not true, um, but our attitude is more like that than we'd like to admit. <laughs> no one really thinks they're a greedy person, or at least not as greedy as these other people that they know, right? Because we all know greedy people. It's super easy to see in, other, in others, but man, is greed hard to see in ourselves. I'm not greedy. I just like nice things. <laughs> I'm not greedy. I, I work hard for my money. I'm not greedy. Look, I want to give, but I just can't right now. I'm not greedy. I just want a little, if I just had a little bit more, then I'd be happy. Then I'll be good. I'll be content. And that last point, 
And that's what we'll see about greed this morning. In fact, we'll see all of it. But here's the big idea for the morning. The more you want, the less you have. The more you want, the less you have. The more you want, the more you, you place your hope in things and money and ownership and all that money and ownership and possessions, all that we think they provide for us, the less you'll actually have and your life will, in fact, be the opposite of happy. It will be miserable. Now, we are continuously bombarded with, with a very different message than that, right? The message that money and things will indeed make us happy. That if, we just, if, if I just had that one thing that I see in an advertisement that is everywhere, if I just had that one thing, I would, I would finally have enough. But the more you have, the less you'll, you'll want because you'll finally possess what you need for happiness, right? That's a message that we hear. But God's word has a very different story. Uh, and we're going to look at Paul's warning to a young pastor, Timothy, about the dangers of greed. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy can be a little tough to find. It's in the back in the New Testament. If you find any books starting with a T, you're really close, just a few pages away. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I'll start reading at verse 6. Um, but a little context first. Paul is warning Timothy against false teachers throughout this letter. It's actually a major theme in here, and he brings it up at the very end specifically to warn Timothy, a young pastor, again, against teachers who will use their message to get rich, who will exploit the faith uh, for material gain. And so he, he goes on to write in verse 6, the truth about greed and a warning to Timothy and to me and to all of us. Uh, so follow along with me. I'll read verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the first thing about greed uh, for us this morning is this. It promises happiness, but can never be satisfied. Greed promises your satisfaction, your happiness, but will, it will not only fall short of that, but will ultimately destroy you. And Paul keys in on this idea of contentment, uh, of being satisfied, to be happy with what you have. Uh, and the word that's been sticking with me all week is this word, enough. When you're content, you have enough. He's just warned against the, uh, the false teachers who, who will use godliness for material gain. He says in verse 5, uh, there are those who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And then Paul flips it around on, his head, on its head in verse 6, and he says, actually, godliness with contentment, that's great gain. Godliness, virtue with contentment is great spiritual gain. And for Paul, what leads to contentment, this, this in, having enough? He says, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. <laughs> food and clothing, the bare essentials. It's a pretty low bar for contentment. <laughs> for us it is anyway, for me it is. 
Maybe we need more reminders that we arrive on this earth with nothing and we can't take anything with us. That's exactly where Paul anchors contentment. Whatever we have beyond food and clothing are luxuries to to be enjoyed and enjoy them we should. But greed, um, greed says happiness is found beyond contentment, right? You need more than you need. You need more than enough to be happy. It's this desire for more that's connected, we, it's connected most, mostly with money and possessions, things, ownership. But it can be fueled by much deeper desires or fears, fear of going without. We're greedy because we're, we're afraid that we won't have enough. Not just that we want more than enough, we're afraid we'll be left with nothing when we need it. Or the, ple- the pleasure of comfort and ease. Or the approval and acceptance of others. You know, that people will think we're something because we have resources. Or the power of control that comes with having these resources at your disposal whenever you need them. Whatever it is, I mean, there are, there are likely as many motives for accumulation, for gathering money and stuff. <laughs> there, there are likely as many motives as there are people in this room, right? There's not a single underlying motive, ugly motive for greed. But Paul is clear on one thing. The greedy person will never be happy. Not ultimately. They will never be satisfied. They will never have enough. Look again at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. See, I think, I'm pretty sure Paul has this exact trap in mind when he's talking about money, right? He says, he says, those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a trap. It's a trap. It's not going to lead to happiness, to life, to fulfillment. He says, if, if godliness is contentment, with contentment is great gain, greed is only loss. And not just for the greedy person, though it is that. But for all the people around them who pay the price for their greed, for this vice, the greedy person will go after more without regard for anyone else. Paul says, many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And we see this all the time. The the example that came to mind immediately for me um, was the Bernie Madoff scandal the largest financial fraud in United States history, $65 billion just taken from people and used, and used for selfish gain, plunging people into ruin. But it's not just large-scale scandals. Right? This happen, happens every day in broad daylight. Um, payday loan institutions are doing this all the time, pitched by, by the greedy as a lifesaver for those who are needy. Right? Payday loans bury people in debt. Those are just two examples. Um, injustice and greed always go together. That's the point. Greed blinds us from the needs of others, from the ways that we can love our neighbor. Rebecca DeYoung has said it like this, and she's the author of Glittering Vices. We're going to quote it every week. Just, just get ready for that. She says this, The hallmark of well-entrenched greed is a willingness to use people to serve our love for money rather than, than the use of money to serve our love for people. I think that's right on. Now, look, we're not 
<laughs> you're not Bernie Madoff, uh, and no one here, at least to my knowledge, owns uh, a payday loan institution. But that doesn't mean our greed doesn't blind us from the ways that we can fight injustice and love our neighbor. It doesn't blind us from the needs of others that we, we could help meet with our own resources. The greed at work in my heart will never make me happy and may well keep others from getting what they need. In fact, Paul says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. That famous proverb that's often misquoted. Uh, he doesn't say money is the root of evil. Right? That misunderstands the nature of currency uh, and misses the point altogether. Right? There's nothing inherently wrong with money. I hope you hear that uh, this morning. It's okay to make money. It's okay to, to spend money. It's okay and even good to save money. Right? Money isn't the problem. This is a heart issue. And it's a heart issue that, may, that, that will plague the rich and the poor alike, right? Greed is a trap for those who have and those who have not and everyone in between. It's a trap for all of us in this room. And the most dangerous thing about greed uh, is who we become when we are shaped by it. <laughs> Namely, people who think they no longer need God. Look at the end of verse 10. Well, he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, which, is, which was a good word for me this, this week, through this craving for more, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Does not sound like the road to happiness, right, or fulfillment. The greedy person easily wanders away from Jesus, seduced by this lie that if I, just have, if I could just get this one thing, I'll be, I'll be fine. Or maybe not even that, just this bald-faced, I just want more and more for security, for pleasure, whatever it is. We can, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that, if, that wealth will make us self-sufficient. That somehow having money or, or more possessions means I don't need God. And listen, this is a sober warning for me. Pa- Paul's talking about all of us, yes. But s- specifically through the example of spiritual leaders who wander away from Jesus because of greed. I am greedier than I will ever admit. And so are you, probably. We're blind to greed in ourselves because there's always someone we think is greedier, but I don't care about those people this morning, (laughs) and neither should you. Take, Take a good, hard look at yourself into your heart. What do you see? Where do you struggle to be content? How much is enough? What's on your Amazon wish list that you think will make you happy? That question comes right out of my own personal experience, by the way. Kids, there are toys that you desperately want, but you don't don't really need. They won't make you happy because you'll only want more. Adults, there are toys that you desperately want (laughs) that you don't really need. They won't make you happy either. Because you'll only want more. You're feeding that monster. It's a trap. What we need isn't more money or more stuff. What we need, Paul says, is godliness with contentment. That is great gain. 
to become virtuous people, as we've been talking about throughout this entire series. Greed promises happiness, but it can never be satisfied. That's what we see from Paul's warning to Timothy here. And he continues in verse 11 to urge Timothy towards godliness, and he ends with this beautiful doxology. I'm going to read verse 11 through 16, so follow along with me. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen, ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I love that Paul just can't help himself. He just starts worshiping at the end of this benediction. But in many ways, verses 11 through 14, right, they're at the core of this entire series, right? He says, run away from the, flee these things, run away from this vice, and run after virtue. And then he says, what our second point is this morning, take what is already yours, eternal life. It's our second point. What you really need is already yours. It's already offered to you. He says, take hold of the eternal life. I almost missed it. We almost miss it here. It's tucked away in there. Take hold this life with with Jesus that is both a present reality and a future hope, right? Life, eternal life we know from Jesus in John 17. This is eternal life that they know you, the one true God, and your son whom you've sent, right? Relationship with Jesus. That's eternal life. We have that now. It's true, and it's a future hope that's coming fully when he returns. Paul instructs Timothy to take hold of that, literally to grab on with with a violence, a tenacity. Take eternal life to make it your own. So it's already yours in Jesus. It's yours, but fasten yourself to it as if your life depended on it. Now, I have a toddler who is um, learning to share, that is... That is the positive future-looking way to say it. (laughs) There's some work to do, uh, for sure. But watching toddlers play with a scarce toy um, can tell you a lot about the nature of greed. (laughs) And that it's baked in from an early age. At least that's what I'm telling myself. She certainly didn't learn that from me, right? (laughs) Nope. But in our house, it's the baby stroller. Uh, that that, That toy is the hot commodity. Anyone who comes over, any toddler, not anyone, any toddler who comes over wants to play with it. They will not be happy uh, without it. And toddlers know how to take hold of what they want and are not ashamed to do it, correct? Don't they? They just grab it. They go for it. And that's the picture here. Paul says to Timothy, take hold of your life with Jesus like a toddler grabs for the only stroller in the room. Don't grab for more money or possessions. Don't take hold of more things. Instead, be greedy for the life that you have in Jesus. 
Now, it's worth a reminder, there's nothing inherently wrong with money or possessions or resources or working hard or ambition or success. These are good things to enjoy and can even lead to virtue creation inside of us. God can use them toward that end. It's not really about money, right? It's about what we think money and possessions and ownership, it's about what we think they can give us. Which is why it's, which why it's, it's not about how much or how little you have, but about what your heart really takes hold of. I know people who are very rich and are free from the love of money. As well, people who are poor, who have very little, who are obsessed with it, and are stingy and greedy. But you see, we can be free from greed because we already have what we really need. Listen again to Paul's beautiful benediction. Here he says, Do all of these things, Timothy, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. What more could we need if this is our king? If all things are his and he is returning for us? If he really is in control of all the things that fuel our anxiety, our endless striving. The problem is that we make money our king, we make possessions, we make these desires that are fueling our greed, fear of going without, the, the power, the illusion of power and control that comes with having. Jesus is the king of kings. He can keep you safe. You can run to him and find refuge in Jesus. We can find acceptance in him in ways that we we cannot find acceptance anywhere else. Certainly not in having. He promises to actually satisfy us, to make you whole. So instead of grasping for those things that can never make us happy, Take hold of what is already yours in Jesus. Now, that sounds nice, but how? How do we do that? Verse 17 gives us the foundational starting point. Paul turns to those who are already rich, who already have much, and he tells Timothy to say this. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or arrogant, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So Paul doesn't outright condemn wealth, being rich, right? We know that's deeper than that. Greed is deeper than that. But he does go right at the dangers of, and the responsibilities of wealth. He goes right at it. He says there's a, there's a temptation here for those who have To be arrogant, to think they don't need anyone else. To set their hopes on riches. Paul says, no, tell them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. The only only certain thing about wealth is that you can't take it with you. 
It's going away. It says, no, tell them to place their hope in, in the giver of all good things, the one who richly provides us with everything we need. It's a matter of where we place our hope. Are we hoping in money and stuff, which we can't take with us, or are we hoping in God, who alone has immortality? Do we hope in the gifts or in the giver? Are we arrogant or do we humbly depend upon the one who can actually provide us with all that we need, who can actually satisfy us? These are good diagnostic questions to think through that have been helpful for me. But here's the ultimate test uh, and the virtue that will help us kill greed. It's our third point this morning. Give it away before you have nothing left. Give it away before you have nothing left. The, the virtue of generosity is the only thing that will kill greed inside of us. Greed says that the more you have, the less you'll want, right? If I just had this, I, I, won't want, I won't want anything anymore. But that proves, that, that proves itself to be a lie every time, right? I, this iPhone, I'm already tired of it. I couldn't wait to have it, right? We all know that greed... Getting what you think you want does not satisfy greed. We know that the more you want, the less you really have. And generosity says this. The more you give, the more you'll have. The more generous you are, the more joy you'll have in life. And listen, I'm not, this is not based on any kind of prosperity theology that puts God in your debt when it comes to your generosity, your giving. Okay, that your faith in giving will produce for you material wealth and physical health. That's not what I'm saying. That there's a fullness of life that comes with generosity because it's the way we were made. Here's how Paul says it in verses 18 through 19. Here's, here's what he calls them to do as the antidote to greed. He says, they, are, they, the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's a call to concrete action. Paul says, tell them to do good through generous giving. Through sharing, giving it away before, before they have nothing left. Be generous with what you've been given because it's not yours anyway. Paul makes that clear. God is the one who richly provides all that we enjoy and it's still his. Evie has recently learned the word mine. No, mine. She says that all the time now. Actually, last night we were uh, in the car. She had a book, uh, her book, right? She'll tell you that pretty quickly. She, she proceeded to, to say no, mine about every page in the book. It was not enough to say this book is mine. She declared every single page in that book was hers. Whether it's hers or not, she says no, mine. And I'm told that gets better with time and maturity. That it's a stage, right? It'll pass. <laughs> but I'm not so sure. Because I have a hard time getting this word mine out of my head, right? My house, my money, my stuff, my time. <laughs> mine is a stage that's just going to pass someday. <laughs> it's lasted over 30 years for me. We have an ownership issue, don't we? We struggle to really believe that everything we have is not our own. 
And if we really understood whose name was, was on, name was on the title of literally everything in our possession, we wouldn't have such a hard time parting with it. It'd be easy to be generous, at least increasingly easy. Now, have you ever had the joy of spending someone else's money? Spending money that you didn't earn, right? Whether or not it's on their behalf, right? That's even easy. Spending money for their purposes, it's great. That's the life we're called to. A life for which we were made, a life of generosity, a life of spending God's money and using his things for his purposes. A generous, giving Christian is the one who, who has taken hold of life. Paul brings that back here in verse 19. He says, so that they may take hold, gener- tell them to be generous so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That which really satisfied, satisfies the life for which we were made. We were made in God's image. He is a generous God. We were made to be generous people. And when we talk about generosity, and we, the church, me, a pastor, it's easy for that to feel really self-serving. Like we're just saying, you got to give because it, it pays my bills or whatever. In, in the most sincere way, we're not talking about what we want from you. We're talking about what we want for you. If we hang on to our things, our money, whatever it is, we'll have nothing left in the end. But if we hang on tightly to the life with Jesus and the generosity it, it produces, we'll have everything we need. I want to close with just a couple practical handles. Um, the first one is sort of Captain Obvious. First is give generously. There's just no substitute for giving when it comes to our formation, when it comes to us becoming more like Jesus. Every time I stretch out my hand to give, it gets a little easier. Over and over again, I'm rewiring my attachment to possessions. I'm, it's freeing me from the tyranny of, of thinking that I need more, that I need to hang on in order to be happy. It's like teaching the monkey how to drop the Skittles, right? So they can pull their hand out of the trap. There's really not much else to say here, but practice giving things away. Sharing your money and your possessions with others. They don't really belong to you anyway. Second, as it relates to giving generously, start small and never stop. Find a place and amount, and particularly with money, Pick a spot to start giving, but never settle for where it is. Don't stop there. Now, the question always becomes, okay, yeah, but how much? Like, just tell me how much I should give. Uh, which is a practical question, and it shows how greedy we are, right? We just want to know, the, like, what's the minimum? I love how C.S. Lewis uh, talks about this. Um, we've quoted this before, but it's just too good uh, and terrible when you take it seriously says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusement, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch our, or hamper us, I should say it is too small. There ought to be things, and here's the kicker, 
There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our commitment to giving excludes them. There should be things in my life, I say this just reluctantly because I'm greedy, there should be things in my life I want to do or want to own, but I can't because I give. Rebecca DeYoung, again, searching for greed's antidote, she writes, perhaps the best advice is the oldest, tithe. (laughs) Now think about this. If every week or every month or every paycheck you gave away 10% of it, you'd better believe it will start to change who you are, especially if you you previously had not been giving. (laughs) It's going to change. It's going to shape you. You might not be generous now, but that that is right in the middle of the pathway to becoming a generous person. Now, tithing isn't necessarily the starting point, right? 10% may not be the starting point. It may be closer to 5 or 3%. Whatever it is, start somewhere and keep increasing it. But it's also not the finish line. That's clear in the New Testament. We're called to give generously. Once we hit 10%, we're not necessarily done. Right? Many of us can afford to give more. So keep pushing yourself. And again, I say that when I, literally, as I stand here and say, give more, it feels really self-serving to say that. And yet, it's not what I want from you. This is for our own good. And listen, this is a generous church. That was born out. We just did a, a survey sort of measuring the spiritual health of our church. And this is a really generous church. And I'm excited about that because it means that God is doing things inside of us to combat this greed, to push it back, and to, be, and to make us more like Jesus. So thank you for your faithfulness and generosity. And we ought to all increase, right? Not, we, we shouldn't stop where we are. Third, finally, watch your lifestyle. I know for me, if I want to be generous, I have to watch my spending. And this is the biggie for me um, because lifestyle creeps, doesn't it? Things that used to be luxuries are now commonplace. Things I, did, I used to think, oh, man, if I just had that, I'd be happy. <laughs> and then we have it, and we're not, right? Lifestyle creeps. Uh, one of the best ways to keep an, an eye on that is just a good old-fashioned budget, or if you, if you don't like, if that word is a bad word to you, a spending plan, right? <laughs> you will never be generous unless you plan to be generous, That's true if you're 5 or you're 25 or you're 75. If you're dirt poor or if you're filthy rich, you will never be generous unless you plan to be. We need to practice that generosity to cultivate uh, that in us. At the very top of our budget, each month is what we're going to give away. Uh, Everything gets spent after giving. So don't give the leftovers. Give first. The more you want, the less you have. Friends, instead of always grabbing for more stuff, take hold of the life that you have in Jesus. What you need, you already have. And he has lived this out perfectly for us, has he not? You can't outgive God. Jesus poured out everything. He gave his entire life to come near to us, to rescue us, greedy as we are, slothful as we are, Arrogant, prideful, envious, all these things we, we've seen to be true in these vices. Jesus came to save us from sin and to save us for good works, to become virtuous people. 
And we give because it's what he's done for us, and it's, it's who he's made us to be. So let's train ourselves, friends, to take hold of that life. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have given us all that we need in Jesus. I pray that you would convict each one of us now. What, where is it that we struggle to be content? Are we pursuing godliness, this virtue through the practice of generosity? Or, or are we becoming greedier people? God, I pray that wouldn't be true. Pray that the truth of your gospel, that you, you gave up everything to be near to us. You gave your, your life to save us from greed and a whole host of other sins and to make us new. And I pray that that message would take root in our hearts and we'd become the kind of people you've made us to be. We would live the life that is truly satisfying. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one practice every week uh, that we engage, it's a way of reminding ourselves that Jesus spared no expense. We cannot outgive God. He gave his entire life for us to know us is this, this practice of communion where we come to the table, we take the bread that represents Christ's body broken, we dip it in the cup, represents his bloodshed, who partake as a family, um, as a way of reminding ourselves that we need a Savior, that we are greedy people. So as you stand in line today, I take it to mean you are saying, I, there is greed deep inside of here that G, only Jesus can fix. So the way we do it here, it's open communion. You do not have to be a member of Christ's community to partake, but we do, we do ask that you be a follower of this Jesus, that um, this just won't mean for you what it will mean for the, those who follow him. I, I'd encourage you to take this time to reflect on the claims of Christ. Uh, and maybe as an initial step of faith, you do um, stand in line to partake. Uh, but uh, groups of four to six, the two stations, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then partake at the instruction of your leader. Uh, but as you are ready, please come to the table.